Hello, listeners. Welcome to Freelance Friday with Vay Casey, a podcast all about freelancing through the experience and opinions of a current full-time freelancer. Today on the show, we've got Jonathan Bander of Rich and Bander, certified public accountant based out of Brooklyn, New York, uh, with a client base of over 500 clients, mostly dealing with small independent businesses, freelancers. Felt like he was a great candidate to come on the show today to talk about some of uh, the legal and tax questions that a lot of freelancers have, but really don't understand. And so we're hoping that he can kind of give us uh, some insight into how to kind of stay out of uh, trouble and uh, build our freelance businesses effectively. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today, Jonathan. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I uh, appreciate it greatly. And uh, uh, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you would uh, give yourself, you know, give us a little brief intro about yourself, uh, what would you like for us to know about you? Sure. Um, as Casey said, my name is Jonathan Bander. I'm a CPA. Uh, we have offices in New York City and also locations in Brooklyn. Uh, we, as Casey said, service over 500 for-profit clients and a handful of not-for-profit clients. And mostly our for-profit clients are exactly like you guys, small, self-employed people that either have S-Corps, LLCs, so on and so forth, doing various trades and jobs and so on and so forth. I mean, from the tech industry to manufacturing to, to you name it. Uh, so we're in it and uh, we're helping people every day. So it's my pleasure. I appreciate it coming on and happy to talk about a few things. So um, you mentioned, even right there on the start, um, S-Corps and uh, LLCs. Can you yeah. give me a little, like, insight and breakdown on the different types of business structures. I know like for me personally, a couple of years ago, I, I started out my freelance business and I was just a sole proprietor for a couple of years. And then, uh, one of my other friends, it's a freelancer, uh, kind of advised that I restructure and told me about the benefits he had gained from restructuring to, um, an S corp. And so I went through that process, but I still, even though it's been a couple of years now, still don't really like understand the differences from all those different types. And it's like, we started out as like, it was like an, I, I filed as an S corp, but then it ended up becoming like an incorporation. And yeah. I, I don't understand all that stuff really. Happy to do it. Uh, keep in mind, everyone, this is a state by state by state. There's differences on state by state by state. So in some states, if you start an LLC, there's a way to convert it to another type of an entity, to an S-Corp or another type of an entity. In some states, there isn't. So just keep that in mind, but I'll go through the basics of, of everything. Um, so uh, the main structures that you would be as a freelance self-employed person, well, let me back up one more second. The four main structures are a sole proprietor, uh, a C-Corp, a C-Corporation, which is the oldest, longest standing type of entity you could have, uh, the S-Corp, and then the LLC. And I'll explain a little bit. Oh, and there's also, sorry, there's also the general partnership. Uh, and I'll explain how those all kind of came online. Uh, sole proprietor is just uh, you go outside, you want to operate as yourself. Um, you don't even incorporate at all. You really don't need to do anything. You just start being paid as a freelancer and receive a 1099 personally. Uh, the downside of a sole proprietorship is that you have unlimited liability. Uh, there's nothing protecting you. So if, God forbid, you get into a dispute with a customer or a vendor and they come after you and you lose, 
it's on you personally. So uh, it's important, I feel, not to operate as a sole proprietor. I feel like it's only good to operate as a sole proprietor if uh, you're testing the waters and seeing if your business is going to have some traction and start up and keep moving. You might want to start as a sole proprietor because there's nothing you need to do. You just go out, go to the market, start doing whatever service, selling whatever you have, and see how it goes. Uh, but as soon as you have some traction, you see you're going to do it for a long time, and the business is going to build, I'd suggest moving into an S-Corp, a C-Corp, or an LLC. Um, so moving into one of those. Um, originally, there was really just a sole proprietor and the C-Corp. And the C-Corp is a self-contained corporation. And that's the oldest, longest structure standing. And everybody has probably heard the term double taxation at one point in their life. Uh, that's a C-Corp. And what it is is everything is contained inside the C-Corp. So if the C-Corp has profits, if it has losses, it's all inside the C-Corp. The C-Corp pays the taxes, the C-Corp keeps the losses, and they pass forward. Um, if there's it, the only way to get money out of the C corp is to take it as a dividend, to take the profits out as a dividend, and then you're taxed again personally. So the C corp has double taxation. So basically, so, so basically, the C corp itself is taxed. So like, say as like I as a right. freelancer file as a C corp, and it's still just me by myself. Like the money, the profit coming in would be taxed as the business entity itself. But then after I pay myself, I would also be taxed on it again. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Um, correct. There is some ways to reduce that through tax planning, but ultimately, yes, you're subject to this double taxation regime, which is not good. And pre-2018, C-Corp's highest tax rate was 39%. So it was pretty brutal if you got taxed at 39%, took it out again, and then got taxed again. Yeah. You were like way above. You were like in the 50%, 60% tax bracket. Then. Wow. It was brutal. So then, so then the gods that be came out with the S-Corp. And they said, this is brutal. Let's come up with a way to reduce this double taxation burden. So they came up with the S-Corp. And the S-Corp makes it so that the S-Corp does not pay any taxes. And whatever profit is left over passes through to people personally. And then they pay tax personally. So that's the S-Corp. It's, it's a single taxation regime. Um, I'll come back to the differences between an S-Corp and an LLC after we go through them a little bit further. Okay. So the S-Corp eliminates the uh, double taxation. Uh, S-Corp files a tax return. It looks very similar to a C-Corp, but at the bottom there's no tax calculation. It passes through on a form called a K-1 to the individual owner of the S-Corp where all the taxes are paid. Uh, the next is the LLC, and the LLC is same thing. It's a it's a pass through entity, uh, similar to the S corp, um, where everything passes through to the individual. Um, help clarify. Um, let me back up one more minute. Um, so originally in time there was the C corp. And it was just the sole proprietor and a general partnership. That was it. There was the C-Corp, which was a self-contained thing that paid all the tax. 
And then there was a sole proprietorship, which had no, uh, no liability protection at all. And then there's the gen, and there was also a thing called the general partnership. And that would be like me and you get together, we form a business, but we're not technically incorporating. We're just joining forces to work together. It's basically two sole proprietors coming together right, and saying, let's right. work. So you had the general partnership, the sole proprietor, and the C-Corp. And those are on opposite ends of the spectrum. So they said, let's come up with the S-Corp to merge these opposite ends of the spectrum. Because the, the sole proprietor and the general partnership only had one layer of tax on people personally, and the C-Corp had two layers. So they said, let's come up with the S-Corp to bridge that gap and basically have the rules of a corporation and the protection of a corporation, but it'll pass through and only be taxed one time like a general partnership or a sober writer. Um, there's issues with the S-Corp. There's issues with the S-Corp and that was supposed to, supposed to be eliminated through the creation of the LLC. So the issues with the S-Corp is it's not flexible. So if two people own an S-Corp 50-50 and one person puts in all the money, let's say they put in $100,000 and it's all lost, they, they, the business loses all the money, but they're 50-50 partners, that means they both receive a $50,000 loss pass-through, but only one can take that loss pass-through because only one person put in all the money. Under an LLC, it still passes through exactly like an S-Corp, but you have three factors that you could allocate. You have capital ownership, loss ownership, and profit ownership. So if you and I, the same exact example, both owned in an LLC, uh, and I put in 100000 you put in nothing, and we lose it all, we could own it 50-50, but I could receive 100% of the losses or the profit until I recoup my investment of 100000 so the LLC was born to be very, very flexible. Uh, just an example, it works very well. Uh, think about it like this, where I'm a graphic designer and I, my friend's a graphic designer and we start a company and we're gonna own it 50-50 because we believe ultimately we're gonna build a lot of value and when we sell the company, we're gonna split that sale 50-50. We both own the capital 50-50. But from year to year, we're gonna base the profit sharing of each other, how much profit we each get, based on who brings in the most business. So, uh, if I brought in 80% of the business one year and he brought in 20%, we could split the profits 80-20 in year one. In year two, if uh, he brought in 90% of the business and I brought in 10% of the business, we can split it that way. So you have a varying ability to split profits and losses but ultimately, we both own the company 50-50. Now, the now with that split, is that something that the like percentage split of like profit or loss, is that something that could be like changed year to year? Yes, it can. Okay. The capital, not so much because that is the <laughs> equity ownership in the company. And there's some value tied to that. But the profit and loss can be determined on a variable basis. Okay. On a varying variable basis. So... To get back to the S-Corp for one more minute, and I'm sorry I'm jumping around a lot. It's difficult to teach this without a whiteboard and a piece of paper. <laughs> but an S-Corp, 
something important is it can only be owned by individuals in S-Corp. Only can be owned by people with social security numbers that are residents in the United States. That's the rule of an S-Corp. And it can only have up to 100 owners. So if I have a S-Corp business and it's doing really well and I decide, hey, I want to go out and I want to try to find an investor for my business, and that investor comes, and that investor is an LLC, it voids my S-Corp. And my S-Corp becomes a C-Corp. And that can be very good or very bad. But an LLC can be owned by anyone anywhere in the world. So an LLC is very flexible in regards to ownership too. Uh, it might not be the best vehicle for foreign ownership, but for this presentation, keep in mind, an LLC can be owned by anyone and an unlimited amount of people in a very flexible manner where an S-Corp is very, very strict and um, can really just be owned by people. So I, the question is, what is the benefit of the S-Corp, I think, over the LLC? Because the LLC sounds so flexible and pass-through and great, just like the S-Corp is also pass-through. Um, but it sounds much more strict. Um, if, I, if, if I paid you uh, a paycheck, on your paycheck I take out federal tax, Social Security, Medicare, and I take out if there's any state taxes, depending on where you are. The flow-through of an S-Corp to somebody personally is only subject to federal tax, only. Not subject to the Social Security and the Medicare tax. The flow-through of an LLC is subject to federal Social Security and Medicare tax. So what that means is um, you pay more tax, basically, on an LLC. but it, so all of your flow throughs of an LLC are subject to those three taxes. S Corp only one tax. Uh, the IRS says you're supposed to have a reasonable salary from your S Corp to yourself. But what that means is if your company had, let's call it a $100,000 profit, on an S Corp, you could take a $30,000 salary, give yourself a salary as if you're an employee of your own S Corp. And that 30000 would be subject to Social Security and Medicare tax and federal tax. Uh, but the rest would only be subject to federal tax. On an LLC, whether you left the money in the company or out of the company, the whole 100000 is subject to federal tax, Social Security tax, and Medicare tax. And that Social Security and Medicare tax is 15.3%. Without getting into how the whole thing's calculated, it's called self-employment tax. It's 15.3%. So on $100,000, we're talking $15,000 that you would pay more under an LLC than under an S-Corp. So just to give that example again, if you had $100,000 profit at the end of the year and you owned an LLC, you would pay federal tax then you would pay 15.3% self-employment tax. So on 100,000, call it 15,000. On an S-Corp, if it all flowed through to you personally, you would only pay federal tax, depending on your bracket. You would not pay the 15.3% tax, which is potentially $15,000. So there's big tax savings to an S-Corp, but very, very 
stringent, it's a strict type of an entity, only allowing a certain type of shareholders, a very strict share, you know, share split regime versus uh, an LLC, which you can be very flexible uh, with the profit and the losses and all that, but potentially your taxes are higher. Okay. Uh, uh, so – a lot of information. No, that's really good information. Now, I know I, uh, whenever I was in the process of restructuring, I did do the like structured to an S corp, and then, <clears throat> and then from there, I think we converted it to an incorporation. And my understanding was that LLC or incorporation, like, basically, are the same thing, but it's just like, are you putting LLC or, or incorporated at the end of your business name? So, I'm not, I'm not an attorney, but I will tell you, as far as I know. The liability protection under a corporation, under an Inc., under an LLC, under a limited, are all the same. So if you're an S-Corp, a limited liability, a corporation, all of those you have the same protection. You don't have the same protection with a sole proprietor. Okay. You're pretty, you're pretty screwed there if you get in trouble. <laughs> you, know, now, you don't want to get in trouble as a sole proprietor. Yeah, that's um, that was like one the, that and the like the self employment tax is like were like two of the main reasons that I did the restructure. Honestly, it was the like self employment tax when I saw the difference, and that was like a big a big reason why I restructured. Um, if if you are a single member person owning a business, I'll I'll say one other thing. If I if I'm advising somebody that's just a single person freelancer, they're doing consulting work, or they're, they're starting a, a whatever business, but it's a sole owner. And you have the choice as a sole owner to own an S-Corp or an LLC. I'm more of an advocate of the S-Corp versus the LLC. You get to manage the amount of self-employment tax you're going to pay. You get to decide, am I going to pay myself a salary? And based on that salary is how much you will pay. If you don't pay yourself a salary, you're not paying into Social Security and Medicare. So you get to decide how much of that you're going to save. Uh, and then also, when you file an S-Corp tax return, it's a separate tax filing. If you're a single-member LLC, you're filing it on your personal taxes under what's called a Schedule C. And that's the same form that is used for a sole proprietor. Same exact form that you would, uh, a sole proprietor and a single member LLC use. And if you Googled it, that form, Schedule C, is the highest audited tax form. So um, no one likes being audited. <laughs> so I'm just suggesting uh, if you don't want to be audited, uh, it's, it's a good idea to, to consider a multi-member LLC or an S-Corp. S-Corp is much down on the number of audits they do annually. Okay. Um, a single member LLC and a sole provider are the highest two audited tax businesses out there. Uh, doesn't mean they're bad choices. Just means. So it sounds like I may need to potentially reconsider uh, what I'm doing structuring wise, maybe, or at least to look into it with that having that knowledge. Potentially, the Schedule C. I'll just say this: a Schedule C on. Your personal taxes, that's where it houses a sole proprietor and a single member LLC information is the highest audited tax form. So if you're a sole proprietor, you have no choice. If you're a single member LLC and you want to remain an LLC, I recommend you add your brother, your mother, a friend, somebody you trust, give them 1% capital 
um, even a child, and then you could take it off of that Schedule C and start filing a partnership tax return, and that reduces your risk of being audited. Okay. The the uh, highest to lowest is a sole proprietor, Schedule C, single member LLC. Uh, under that is a uh, a partnership, then an S corp, then a C corp. And even though the partnership, LLC partnership, is right under the single member LLC, there's a big drop off between the number of audits done from there into a partnership. Uh, the Schedule C is a very easy form to audit. I mean, you file it, it sounds, or you have. It's, uh, it, it's simply just income. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, at this point, I have uh, had a CPA that I've had that I kind of give my stuff to and say, I don't understand this stuff. This is just kind of yep. what I was advised to do. Here's all of my like yeah. numbers of everything. Please help me take care of my stuff and and not to get uh into trouble or auditing area because that's stuff that i just exactly. don't want to deal with i don't think anybody wants to deal with that shit yeah and it it just has to do with the forms are more complex um and the irs needs higher level employees to audit more complex forms so a schedule c is a very simple form it's very easy to audit uh, a very, a very, a, a new or lower level beginning auditors can audit it, and there's many more of them than there are high paid auditors. Uh, okay, that's that's simply it. Um, I, uh, I'll tell you, out of 500 tax returns that I do every year, uh, over the last 13 years that we've been around, Rich and Bender's been around for 13 years. Uh, I, I, a lot of people come to me that are being audited. But out of all of ours, I'd say we only had about nine or ten clients be audited, and all of them have been a Schedule C. So only ten, a very small percent in the aggregate. But in, in, out of that sample, it's a hundred percent. Okay. So take it, take it, decide what to do. You know, everyone has to decide what works for them. Yeah. Uh, now, as far as like um, just kind of maintaining or planning for dealing with tax stuff because especially like freelancers we're not we don't have taxes pulled out like you would on a on a w-2 like employment type of job and so uh i mean what do you recommend as far as that as far as like setting money aside or making estimated payments and all that stuff i do um so we have uh Two, two things. One is there, there's, there's different groups of people. There's the groups of people that are very good at nesting away money to pay their taxes. There's the group of people that don't save anything at all. And uh, there's the people that intend to pay estimates, but they just forget to kind of pay them in and, and so on. Um, I would honestly say if uh, – yeah, yeah, by the end of the year, you're going to have to pay it. Um, if you're very good at saving and putting it aside, I am, I am for, look, there's a mandate, there's a, it's mandatory to pay estimates, but the penalty for not paying estimates is not so big. Uh, so if you're not sure how your business is going to do, if it, if it's going to be very cyclical, your business, and you're not sure, you might have a great Q1 and a Q2, but you think Q3 and Q4 might be a disaster. I would say tuck the money aside and hold on to it. And then when you get the third and fourth quarter, bless you, when you get the third and fourth quarter, then start paying in some estimates. Uh, 
uh, depending on how your business rules are. Because I have clients that they want to pay estimates. They're stressed about estimates. They're thinking, let me get some money and I'm earning money. I, I got to pay something. And they push all this money over. They, they pay it all into the IRS or their state. And then the third and fourth quarter is, is bad. Something goes wrong. Something changes. And they, you can't get that money back once you mail it in until you file your taxes and apply for a refund. So I'm of the mind that if you're good at saving, I would tuck it aside and pay it into the third and fourth quarter. If your business is consistent and you can measure how much uh, your profit will be throughout the year and your confidence will continue, then yes, I would recommend uh, paying it. It's better than paying it all come April 15th. Okay. Uh, much better. Uh, yeah, doing it. Um, some people, I'll say, um, somebody I know very close to does not have the ability for some reason to manage paying in four estimates a year. I have no idea why. They just they, they can't put it on their calendar. They can't manage it. Literally, they mail in one every other week. They use the same <laughs> coupon. They just mail it in every other week when they get paid. They get paid every two weeks, and they just write a check and mail it in at the same time. At the end of the year, they have to add up 26 payments they've made, but it, it works for them. Um, so I, I base it largely off your business and how you feel the third and fourth quarter will be uh, before front-loading it on the first and second quarter. Uh, but I do think it's healthy to pay estimates, but everyone's the same. Uh, it depends on your tax bracket with how much you pay in. Uh, you have to pay in order to avoid a underpayment penalty you have to pay uh, at least 90% of your actual tax for the current year or 110% of your prior year tax. So that means if you owed $1,000 last year, you need to pay 1100 this year over the course of the year to avoid an underpayment penalty. Okay. But if you only owe $300 this year, you only have to pay a 90% of $300. It's the lesser of the two. So that's how you avoid an underpayment penalty come the end of the year. You mentioned that the penalty for not making the estimated payments isn't that great. What are we talking to say yeah. that great? Is it like a percentage of, or like uh, how is that calculated? Yeah, I don't know exactly. Let me do a little math on my phone here, and I'm going to kind of tell you what I think. Um, it's not – hold on one second. It's about it's about a one percent penalty, I'd say. Okay. I think it's about one percent, but it's not huge. But I had a client that owed really he owed five hundred thousand on April fifteenth, and his penalty was it was a huge number, and his penalty was around fifty five hundred dollars. Okay. Um, to him, it was worth paying five hundred because he didn't know if he was going to make it through the third and fourth quarter. So he didn't know the result, and really he made the bulk of his money in the fourth quarter. Uh, one other thing I will say, if you are if you mail in your return, if you don't pay any estimated taxes, and you owe money and you mail in your return, you're going to get a bill that says you, you, you have an underpayment penalty. Say it's $2,000. You have an underpayment penalty, and we calculated it, and here's your bill, and it's $2,000. The IRS assumes that your money is made evenly throughout the whole year. So there's a form called the annualization of income, annualization of income form. 
And if you could show the IRS that you made very little money in Q1, little money in Q2, little money in Q3, and you made the bulk of your money in the fourth quarter, that will reduce that underpayment penalty drastically. Because you're only required to pay it if you have profits. That's so, the, the annualization form? Annualization of income, it's called. I'm going to make a note real quick so I make sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah, I could send you annualization of income. I'm looking up the form number. I can uh, form 2210, and I could send it to you. Okay. Yeah, we'll have some stuff in the show notes of, like, links for you guys and and, and information regarding some of this stuff, too. You You could include my email if you'd like, and everyone can email me a thousand questions. I don't mind. Of course. However you want to do it. Okay. Um, what else is there that we haven't talked about, man, that you think we should know? I think uh, what is big to talk about is the tax changes. What is here now that the tax law changes have passed? Um, I just want to say one thing and then I'll flip right into this. Picking your entity, LLC, S-Corp, whatever, that really should be based on the type of business you're in and whether or not – three things. The type of business you're in whether or not you're going to have partners, and three, whether or not you're then going to try to raise some money for your business. I think those three factors should determine whether you're an S-Corp, an LLC, a C-Corp, and so on and so forth. So think of those three things. Anyone's welcome to email me and talk about it. I'm happy to advise. Um, 2018, first time in a very long time there was a massive tax overhaul. And what's really, and it's really beneficial actually to freelancers and to people that are self-employed, people that own S-Corps, people that own C-Corps, what has happened? What has happened is the C-Corp, so I, I gave that whole spiel earlier about the C-Corp double taxation. And the C-Corp tax rate used to be 39%, and then you would get it out and you were taxed again, and you would end up in about a 60% tax bracket almost. The C-Corp tax rate has been dropped all the way down to 21%. So if your goal is not to take profits out personally, and your goal is to just reinvest all your money into the company and keep it building and just keep reinvesting profits, a C-Corp might be a viable option now because you would just pay 21% on those profits. So the C-Corp tax rate has dropped by almost 20%, which is drastic. So... If you have some savings and you're thinking, I'm going to make a run of this business and any dollar I earn, I'm going to reinvest and get this business going and you don't need to pull money out, a C-Corp might be a great option based on the new code. So where does that leave everybody else that's not in a C-Corp? There are new rules for pass-through people. So this includes sole proprietors. So anyone that is a contractor or as a sole proprietor or contractor or as an LLC or an S-Corp, so on and so forth, all of, none of those pay tax. S-Corp does not pay tax. The LLC flows through as if it's a partnership or a sole proprietor, and the sole proprietorship flows through to the individual person. So on the business level, they don't pay tax. It passes down to the personal level, and then there's tax. So now under the new tax code, all of those people get a 20% deduction on their earnings, and then the rest is taxed. So what I mean is, if you receive a 1099 for $100,000, 
it gets reduced to 80,000 and then you pay tax on 80,000. So for people considering being self-employed and contractors and freelancers, it's a great time to do so. If you have a kind of a mixed relationship with many clients that you're doing work for and sometimes you're an employee and sometimes you're doing you're billing it through your S Corp, you're billing it through your LLC, it's a fabulous time to push away from being an employee for those few clients and see if they can pay you through your company. Um, it's beneficial for them because they will save payroll taxes by paying your company versus paying you as an employee. And other, they'll save insurance money and so on and so forth. Um, so that's a great deduction. There is two limitations. If you are a single person and your taxable income is, it's 157,000 and change. I don't remember the exact number. If your income is below 157,000, you get that 20% deduction. If you're married and your taxable income is below 315,000 and change, you get that deduction. Um, so it's a fabulous deduction, it's 20% off. And then there's new tax uh, brackets. So in addition to uh, that savings, your balance, whatever's left over, is then in those new tax brackets, which are a couple percent below than mostly where everyone was last year. Uh, two other things I'll mention, which are good to know, meals and entertainment. Entertainment, which was a big one, taking clients out, gone, no longer deduction. So it used to be 50% deductible. If I took you out for a meal, we discussed business over a meal, no longer deductible. Like at all? At all. Wow. Stricken. And that's a big one. And I'm very shocked by that because I can only imagine the entertainment budgets of large corporations. Yeah. So. Now, is that any type of business entity that's just, just no deductions for that kind of thing? Yeah, entertainment expenses is gone. Shocking. Shocking. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Is there, I mean, is, so like for, with the like food and stuff, I know, like, is there any delineation or like separation between like um, entertainment and like an actual like client meeting versus or it's not entertainment, but it's actually like part of the so, business? Like, great, great question. Uh, and a tricky question that rides on a very fine line. Um, and I ultimately it'll boil down to, God forbid anyone is at an audit, I think it'll boil down to how reasonable is the auditor and discussing it and being transparent and figuring it out. Um, but yes, you, so you take a client out, you just want to entertain them, show them a good time, court them to get more business out of them, clearly not deductible. Working meals are still 50% deductible. What that really means though is if you're an employee and you purchase a meal and you kind of eat it at your desk while you work, it's a working meal. So, but if you have a client that comes in and you're both working and eating and it's a working meal, I think you could still take it. But that used to be 100% deductible, but now it's only 50% deductible. Okay. So, working meals where I would order, like in our office, I'll order food for the for staff. And uh, that is 100% deductible. It's a working meal. We're supplying food to all the people here. That was 100% deductible. Now, 50% deductible. Uh, if a client comes in, they're sitting with us, and we're working through our lunch, and we're eating, I still feel like that consummates a working meal. I'm not taking them out to a fancy restaurant just to you know, get more business out of them, so on and so forth. Right. 
you through it. Um, so working meals went from 100% down to 50%. Meals and entertainment went from 50% down to 0%, uh, which is shocking. Uh, eventually, I think that will come back to something. Yeah, I feel like there's going to be a bit of an uproar over that probably. Yeah. Uh, what about... Like with freelancers, we travel a lot and that kind of deal. So, what about us? Uh, how does it work with deductions as far as traveling, like transportation, airfare, oh. Uber, hotel, food while we're gone, that kind of stuff? All that stuff is still okay. Still okay. You can deduct travel. You can deduct your hotel. Uh, everything. You eat a meal when you're away. That's a work. That is a working meal, though. That's fifty percent deductible. But for the most part, for the most part, things hung around for the most part. Um, the other big change, which is important, is um, there's something called bonus depreciation. Bonus depreciation. So if I buy, uh, I can't show it to you, if I bought this phone or my laptop, um, typically there's a few different depreciation mechanisms you can use. Um, but one of them was called bonus depreciation, and that would allow you to take 50% in year one and then amortize, allocate, depreciate the rest over the useful life of that piece of equipment. So if a computer is, call it five years, and it costs $1,000, you could take 500 in year one and then the balance over five years. The, the, the remaining $500, $100 a year over five years. Um, bonus depreciation. I have to read up on it, but it increased to 100% under certain things. So depreciation has gone up. And there's also something called Section 179, which um, – let me back up one second. Bonus depreciation, you could take it no matter how your business does financially. So if uh, my business is like break even or a small amount of profit, but I get – some sort of a financing to buy a big piece of equipment, so that equipment costs two hundred thousand dollars. I could have used bonus depreciation to take fifty percent of that and had a hundred thousand dollar loss on my taxes, and that might have been very beneficial to people. Now, now, you can potentially take a hundred percent of that. So they're they're allowing people even more deduction on that level. There's something called Section One Seventy Nine which was 100% write-off. So if I bought my phone again, I could write off 100% of it, but only to the extent of my profit. So uh, that means if I had profit of $1,000 and I spent $1,500 on this phone, I could only take 1000 The other 500 would carry over to next year, and then if I had profit, I'd get to take it next year. So basically it wouldn't, let you, it wouldn't let you throw... Right. Taking the deduction wouldn't they wouldn't allow you to throw your business profits into the negative because Correct. of that deduction. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Um, the section one seventy nine has changed as well, but I'm sorry to say I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, oh, hold on. Can you still see me? Yep. Okay, hold on. I'm getting my Skype back. Here we are. Um, oh, now you're gone. Oh, there. How's that? Still got audio. There you really? Go. Am no, I back? Now you're back, yeah. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, the other important thing, I mean, you, I know, are um, you're down in Texas. I'm in New York. A um, couple things to just talk about quickly is that um, since all of this income, not the C-Corp, passes down to people personally, 
and they pay taxes on it personally, their personal deductions are important. Their, their itemized deductions are important. Um, things have become limited this year and primarily over income taxes. So on your federal tax return, depending on what state you're in, like New York, for example, where I am, we pay New York State, we also pay New York City tax. That was a deduction on our federal return. That's capped at $10,000 now, so there's a reduction there. Uh, but it's also, it's glommed in with real estate taxes. So if you pay real estate taxes plus income taxes, the whole thing is capped at 10000 Home equity lines of credit, so if you buy a house and you have a mortgage and then a home equity line of credit, home equity line of credits are no longer deductible. Okay. That's a big loss for people. Uh, the last thing I'd like to say is um, the other big change that I think a lot of people is a popular topic now is uh, cryptocurrencies. And I'd like oh, yes. to say that there's a, there's a rule, and I won't get too far into it, called 1031 exchanges. And those allow you to, if I had, if I bought this cup in year one and it went up tenfold and it was worth $1,000 in year three and I exchanged it for another cup, an actual cup, uh, I would be able to defer my gain on that until I sold the new cup. You basically defer it until the final sale of the final item. You can keep exchanging, exchanging, exchanging up. That worked across the board for a lot of products and it was very big in the crypto market because you would take your US dollars, you would pump them into the crypto market, you would buy whatever, exchange, exchange, exchange it, and only when you cashed out at the end would there be a taxable event. It has changed that 1031s are only for real estate now. So keep that in mind. If you're a small uh, guy doing some sort of a flipping of properties and tax items, uh, taxable items, uh, it only applies to real estate now. So we could do a whole separate uh, chat on cryptocurrencies and the taxes. <laughs> are but 1031s, it's important. It was an important tool that people used to buy and sell, even stocks and companies, different business assets, all sorts of stuff. It allowed people to buy and sell stuff and not pay taxes till the very end. It's gone. The only thing that exists and remains is real estate, buying and selling real estate and deferring that gain until the very, very end. Okay. So, uh, that's that's all I got. I uh, so I know a couple of years ago, one of my old CPA that I had, he would have me uh, separate out my deductions for my business into different categories, and so it'd be like gear, services, travel, or transportation, and different stuff. And there would be a couple of times where I would like group stuff together, and he'd come back and go, "Hey, this number's a little bit high. Can we split this out into into smaller, like different categories?" Um, and, and then there would be stuff where I think it was like, if I bought an item that was like over a $500 purchase for one item or over a thousand or something, I forget what the number was that I'd have to have a receipt, um, or just like, uh, like itemize and list out that item separately from everything else. Um, what's your take on splitting off like categorizing deductions and, and, and all that kind of stuff? It's, it's good to be granular. It's good to be granular. Um, if you have something sitting on your taxes and it literally says like miscellaneous and on a fat number, it's going to be audited. I mean, they have to kind of understand your business. Um, it's, it's good to be granular. You don't have to be crazy. Like if you have, um, processing fees, merchant processing fees, and you have PayPal fees and you have a 
three strike fees and three other types of processors. You don't need to get into that level of granular detail. Uh, you could just have like merchant fees, but if your merchant fees number is really big, you might not want to glom in bank fees and interest charges and other things. It might be best on your taxes to break it down to multiple lines. Okay. Uh, things like that with the over under of 500, I think it's important in terms of um, if you're buying computers, that type of stuff. There's some stuff that you might want to capitalize and depreciate and so on and so forth. I think it's better to provide your preparer with a little too much detail than a little less detail. Because um, sometimes we'll plug it in and then God forbid somebody gets audited, we'll realize, wait a minute, in that bucket was stuff that shouldn't have been in that bucket that the client thought should have went to that bucket. But it went, just one, one example was um, I had a client once that put a lot of charity. She had a lot of charity. She donated a lot. And she put it into dues. It was in membership and dues. And she honestly thought that was an appropriate category for all her contributions. And uh, she got audited for something else. And uh, it's not deductible the same way. Charity is not deductible the same way as a membership or due, dues. So I'd say, I'd say break it out into categories. We can list, if you'd like, on the site, uh, you know, list of standard categories that people use. Uh, but it's better to be a little more detailed than a little less detailed. Okay. So if I'm at the, uh, say at the end of the year, I'm coming to you and, and having you do my tax stuff, um, or any freelancer, like whenever you take on, I guess let's, let's back up. When you take on a new client, what do you want them to bring to you ideally whenever they're ready to, to have you do their tax stuff? So, I ask for, I need a, I, I love a copy of last year. It'd be surprising sometimes how difficult that is to get. <laughs> copy of last year, and if possible, a copy of the last two years. But copy of the last year, and we'll talk about it, discuss it, see what's on it. But then really just a simple list of, it depends what type of entity they are. But let's pretend they're a single member LLC or sole proprietor, or just simple kind of freelancing. I would say, what is your income? And just give me categorically, what did you spend your money on? Travel, you know, meals and entertainment, books, dues, uh, other paying other freelancers, so on and so forth. Just a simple list. Um, if their business gets above 250000 in sales or 250000 in assets, they're required, if they're a partnership S-Corp, C-Corp, not on a single member LLC or a sole proprietor, the other ones, they're required to do what's called a balance sheet. And a balance sheet is anything but your income and your expenses. It's how much cash you have, it's how much debt you have, how much inventory you have, so on and so forth. Um, In that case, I'd recommend, instead of them just coming in with a sheet, at that point you gotta get set up on some sort of form of accounting software and maintain a little bit of a balance sheet. Use QuickBooks, use Zero, use you know one of those, and it, it, it they're very easy this this day and age. They just download your activity, you code them, and it it does ninety percent of the work for you. Um, but simply put, the first step is I say to everyone, bring your last two years taxes and send me your send me your income and send me your expenses. That's the first, and then we talk and figure out what we got to do from there. Okay, 
Um, well, that covers all the questions I think I have at the moment. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on at this point that you think we ought to know about? There was something I wanted to say, but I don't remember at the moment. Uh, no, I think uh, I think we're good. If it comes to me, I'll, I'll let you know. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, thanks to all the, the viewers and listeners for checking in. Hopefully you got some valuable information from Jonathan today. I know I sure did. And uh, we'll have contact information from him in the show notes at uh, vacc.com slash freelance Friday. We'll also include some links to other resources and, and anything else. Uh, Jonathan and I will get together after this wraps up to kind of go over what we're going to have in there for you, but rest assured there will be goodies in there for you. Anyway, thanks so much for checking us out. And uh, if you found this show helpful, and uh, would you please go leave a rating on iTunes and share this on social media, whatever channels you're on. Helps other people find out about the show and get this valuable information. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Freelance Friday is a Vacacy production. Vacacy is a full-service video production company based in Dallas, Texas. Vacacy, big video production value, freelance agility and scale. 